Good morning, everyone. I'd like to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll spend our time in this passage almost exclusively this morning in this hour. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. At the conclusion of today, we will conclude our expose of the work of elders. And next week, we'll move to what I describe are the attributes of elders. Had the joy and the blessing and the privilege to go visit Jordan yesterday. It was good to see him in the flesh, touch him, taste him, hear him, and smell him. Well, I heard him and smelt him and touched him. I didn't taste him, so. But it was good to see him. See him be doing good. And uh, Jordan, we miss you, buddy. And pray God's speed you get better. And she can be back amongst us soon. I know Holly's taking good care of you. So I know he's watching this morning. When we think about the attributes of a man who will serve as an elder, we go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, because 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 talk about the character of the man. With but one or two exceptions in that, that is exclusive to what 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are talking about. But with the exception of able to teach and hold fast the word, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 don't talk about the work of the man. They describe the character. It may be that a man has the character, but not able to do the work. And so we need to understand something about the work of the man, not just the attributes or the character of the man. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I think is a very good description of what we're talking about. Now, I will acknowledge in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the word elder, shepherd, or bishop is not mentioned there. It will say, esteem those very highly who are over you. He says, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and esteem them very highly in love for the work's sake. This is the idea of over you. That's the idea of, of bishop we're talking about there, an overlooker, an onlooker. And so it does, while it doesn't have the term there, it does contain part of the concept that's there. And so I acknowledge that, that the term isn't there, but the concept and the thought at least is there. And so I want to approach it from that standpoint with regard to what we're talking about this morning. When we think about this passage, <clears throat> we begin, as I just read in verse 12, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. We'll pause for just a moment and talk about this word admonish. This word admonish is a multi-defined word. It is to indicate responsibility or duty. For example, in application, would it be the responsibility and or duty of a man who is going to serve in the role we're talking about. If someone had been missing assemblies. To call and try to encourage them. To begin to attend more regularly. And if that call took place. Would the person receiving the call. Be upset because an elder called them. And so the idea of admonish is. A call 
to responsibility or to duty. And so if there's a responsibility or the duty to watch over the flock and the watching has to do with a missing of something significant, then should that person be upset that a call is given to indicate responsibility and duty? Another application, another de definition of the word admonish is the idea of doing warmly and solicitously, very, very gently, expression of disapproval. If a member of the flock were to receive a phone call or a visit or a conversation from one who is over you with regard to the manner of life in which one is engaged and a gentle expression of disapproval for that and showing why that manner of life is wrong, should one be upset that that call to duty expressed warmly and gently that they're called relative to that, ex exhorted relative to that? And then you have another definition which has to do with that which is friendly. Uh, encourage. Not all the time do, does a person need a correction. Sometimes a person just needs being lifted up. Just needs encouragement. And so repetitiously here, if an overseer, someone over you saw that you were discouraged, just something disconsolate about your countenance, something about your tone, your voice, if they saw a heavy burden on you and, and they came to you in some medium to, to communicate with you, what can I do to lift you up? Would they be considered nosy? Would they be considered out of line for, for trying to, to admonish in that way? And then another definition is the idea of to warn. To warn. For example, in Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, it says, after the first and second admonition, a heretic reject. And so you have a warning that goes. And so here is here's something that a warning is extended. If that warning is extended by someone that is that is over you, would would you think that person onerous? Would you think that person a burden? Or would you appreciate the fact that that what they have done is is they have seen something that you're in danger of or that is threatening you and they warn you about that. And so when you plug all that in to verse 12, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So just plug all those things into that word admonish. And then when you drop down to, to verse 15, it says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is both good for yourselves and for all. And so now he's talking about the relationship of brethren one with another. In fact, he'll, back in verse 13 of that part, he'll say, be at peace among yourselves. He's talking about the relationship. So is it, is it something that is a part of, of the responsibility and duty of this man that's going to oversee to help relationships be harmonious and peaceful with one another? And to make sure there is peace among the flock. And then you drop down to verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies. 
if we were to go to 1 Corinthians 14, I'm just going to summarize this for time's sake. In 1 Corinthians 14, when he talks about an assembly where spiritual gifts were being exercised, and he said, if a man is prophesying, and another receive a prophecy, let the one prophesying be quiet, be silent, let the one having received the prophecy prophesy. Notice it doesn't say, don't stop him from talking. It says, let him speak, but don't quench the spirit. Here the spirit has enabled this man to prophesy. Let him prophesy. And so you see these obligations that go here. He's not saying you, 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 you quiet the man, but you let another prophesy. So you see the responsibilities that go there. But now back up to, back up to verse 14. Because all that kind of leads into what we're going to talk about here in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. This word exhort is different than the word admonish we just talked about. This word exhort is a call to side. To urge to action. It is to go to one and put their arm around that person and pull them close and urge them to greater responsibility and greater service. Now, you only do that with someone you know. Having been in the airport recently, I'm not going to go up to, and nor am I going to let a stranger come up to me, standing in line and just put their arm around me and just pull me in close. I'm going to genuflect here and say, whoa, wait a minute, I don't know you. But if someone I know comes up to me and says, Ricky, I didn't expect to see you here, and puts their arm around me and pulls me in close, that's the idea of, of calling in, of, of pulling in. That only happens with someone you know. So this says that those who are over you know you and you know them. That goes back to John chapter 10 that we talked about. The shepherd know the sheep, and the sheep know the shepherd. Know the voice, and the shepherd knows the name. So here you have this exhortation, a calling to side. But notice the words that he uses. Warn, comfort, uphold, be patient. Do you see those? Warn, he says comfort, uphold, and be patient. The idea of unruly is someone out of ranks. It's a military term. And so here you have someone that is to be in the military line as they're marching, in the parade they have. And someone is out of line, they're out of ranks. And so he says, you warn those who are out of ranks, is the idea. And then we'll talk about uphold the weak. We tried to explain last Sunday in Acts chapter 20, when he says more blessed to give than to receive is how a shepherd, how a shepherd helps those who are weak. And the weak there doesn't mean impoverished financially. I mean, here is someone who may be weak in faith, maybe weak spiritually, may, may just be, be weak in heart. And so he says, you, you, what, you uphold the weak because why it's more blessed to give than to receive. And then he will say, comfort the faint hearted. 
maybe your translation has the word feeble-minded. That is a corresponding or synonymous expression there. Faint-hearted, feeble-minded. When you go look that word up in the Webster's Dictionary, it has a little different definition than what we're talking about here. If you talk about feeble-minded in the dictionary, it talks about someone whose intelligence is lacking. Someone who has mentally handicapped. And not able to fully function because they're mentally handicapped. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about comfort those who are mentally handicapped. He said you comfort those who are feebly minded. So let's look at some passages here that talk about that. You can put your marker there or your finger there. and We're going to look at some other passages just briefly. Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. And verses 4 and 5. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. Then they learned from Mount Hor. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against Moses, against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? To die in the wilderness. For there's no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. Did you see it says. And the soul of the people became very discouraged. That's our word we're talking about. They became very feeble minded. Why did they become very feeble minded? Because they're without something. When do, when do we begin to grumble and complain? Do we begin to grumble and complain when our plate is full? When our clothes fit us right? When the wind is blowing at our back? When everything financially wraps up? I mean, at the end of the month, you got more finances than when you began as opposed to having 10 cents left at the first of the month? you got more monthly, you have money. When do we begin to grumble and complain? We begin to grumble and complain when, when we begin to be without. That's when we begin to find everything wrong with everybody and everything. And it's not peculiar to adults. Children do the same thing. It's across the board. It's, it's not age specific. How many times, parents, do our children begin to grumble and complain because they don't get what they want? Or, mothers, you just have the dishes all cleaned up from supper. Five minutes haven't passed. Walking out from the sink, and they say, I'm hungry again. And you say, you just ate, and then wah, 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 wah. All they do is grumble and complain because they're, they're hungry. No, they're not hungry. It's finished. It's grumbling and complaining. When people become feeble-minded, discouraged, that's when they begin to grumble and complain. So he says, comfort the feeble-minded comfort those who become very discouraged. That word comfort is an interesting word. That word comfort is the idea of to feel what they feel. It is the idea of a with feeler. And the emphasis is on the with part, not the feeler part. So I'm a with feeler. So here is the man over you, and he feels with you. And in doing that, he tries to comfort you. But now here's an interesting twist on that. Sometimes the person over 
becomes feeble-minded. Sometimes the shepherd, the elder, the bishop becomes feeble-minded, and that's when he needs his fellows on the team to also comfort him. And sometimes, and we'll get to this later in a much different lesson, sometimes that's when the flock can comfort the one over you. So it's not just one direction here. So you see this idea of discouraged. Turn to Exodus chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. And look at verse 9. A little different expression, same, same concept. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Now you're familiar with what's taking place up to this point. In chapter 3 it says God has heard their cry. And God now is sending Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh has snubbed him. I don't know this God, therefore he's not a God. I'm a God, he's not a God. I don't know him. I'm a God. If he's a God, I'd know him because I'm a God. And so I'm not going to do it. And instead of letting the people go, Pharaoh tightens the screws on them. He says, no, you're going to work harder and you're going to work without some things. You're going to make it worse. And now then the people are saying, Moses, stop talking to him. You're making it harder on us. All, all you're going to do is take us out to the wilderness and die. And when they leave Egypt, what do they do? They fuss and complain because why? They long for the flesh pots of Egypt. And you want to say, really? Did you forget what was happening 24-7 back here when you were having to work and labor so honestly and you had no time off, nothing whatsoever was your time at all, and now that God's brought you out here, oh, yes, he's, you say you're going to provide. Oh, yeah, you're going to provide. Look at us. Now we're hungry. Yeah, what kind of God are you? That's what they're saying. That's what it means when it says in verse 9, because of the anguish of spirit and cruel body, because of the anguish of spirit, feeble-minded anguish of spirit. Now then plug that in. Comfort those who are anguished of spirit. Comfort those who look at life and all they see is nothing but despair. Oh, yes, you care for me. You say you care for me. But now look at what you've done for me. You just made, the, made things worse for me. He says you comfort them. Comfort them. And then one final illustration on this. So Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh. You're familiar with the fact Jonah does not want to go at all with an emphasis on at all. And so he takes matters into his own hand and he tries to escape the responsibility of God and tries to run from God. That doesn't work so well for him. He turns things around and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches. And of all things, the most unexpected thing happened, and that is the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. And Jonah said to God, I knew that's what you were going to do. I knew when I went and preached, these people would repent. I knew you'd change your mind about destroying them. I knew that's what you were going to do. When you, when you sent me, I knew that's what was going to happen. And so Jonah's sitting out in the hot sun, and God causes a plant to come over him and to offer him shade. But then a worm comes and eats the door to the plant, and now the shade's gone. And the only thing Jonah can fuss about is the worm ate the plant, and now he's got the heat. Instead of rejoicing over the fact that these Ninevites have been saved. He just had a successful gospel meeting among the heathens of heathens. They all walked down the aisle. The whole crew of Ninevites came forward. And all he can fuss about is 
all they did was come forward. And I knew, I knew that's what you'd do. I knew you'd change your mind about them. I went there, and I was going to scorch them into hell, and instead you're sugaring them into heaven. I knew that's what you'd do. That's feeble-minded. Jonah was feeble-minded. That's the illustration of it. And so he says, you comfort the feeble-minded. So turning back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 now. Put this together. There are those who are going to be over you, and they're going to admonish you. They're going to call for responsibility or duty. They're going to, to warn in sometimes a sharp way, sometimes a gentle way, sometimes a friendly way. They're going to lift you up. And then he says, you esteem them because of work's sake, but then you exhort, you call to side. You call them to side. Who? Your brethren. And sometimes you need to warn them because of something. They're walking in, out of ranks. And sometimes you need to comfort the faint-hearted. And sometimes you simply need to uphold the weak and be patient with all. Now, if, being, if comforting the feeble-minded is challenging enough, and it is, it's hard to comfort also someone when you're feeble-minded. When you're the feeble-minded one, when you're the discouraged one, when you're the one that has anguish of spirit, sometimes it's also hard to comfort those who are of anguish, anguish of spirit too. It's kind of like the blind leading the blind here. I mean, everybody's sucking on the dry well here. I mean, it, it, you're just spinning your wheels in the sand. Both are. Pardon the mix, mix of metaphors and colloquialisms there. But you see, it, 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 it's not going anywhere. Why? Because it, you're dry. Everybody's, everybody's dry. And so we have to keep our cups full because we serve out of the overflow. Now, keeping that cup full for those who are serving to comfort is a particular challenge because it is draining, it is exhausting, it is fatiguing to try to comfort those who are feeble-minded. And so there has to be something to do for the one comforting to recharge as well. But this statement, be patient with all. When I was at Oakwood, my very first work, Brother James Trigg, who has been deceased for a number of years now, died of pancreatic cancer years ago, was in Crockett, Texas in a gospel meeting, and it was about an hour, hour and a half over. And I knew Brother Trigg. He was the third preacher Westside and Irving ever had. My dad was first and Jerry Ray the second. And uh, so I thought I was going to go, I'd go hear Brother Trigg. So I, I'm sitting there and things are about to start and he walks down the aisle and says, well, hi, Ricky. Stop and talk to me this moment. How, how are things doing? How are things going? Well, I had no better sense than to just unload on him. I mean, I just dumped right there before he got up to preach. And before he walked off, he said, Ricky, be patient with brethren. I thought, well, <laughs> that wasn't what I was expecting you to tell me. That's all he said. Ricky, be patient with brethren. I'm going to tell you, that's hard for an older person to do, but it's really hard for a young, young gospel preacher to do. Especially when you're just nothing but discouraged, you're beat down. But I've always remembered those words of Brother Trigg. I mean, that was back in 1979. I've always remembered those words of Brother Trigg. 
And those brother Tri- words of Brother Trigg are absolutely true. You have to be patient with all while you're warning them, while you are comforting them, and while you're upholding them. I'm not saying that the person who serves in the role we're talking about never has a moment or moments of exasperation. You do. But nobody else can know it. Because you can never spew that exasperation over on those you're trying to comfort and uphold and warn. And that goes into some of the attributes we'll talk about later, and that is self-control. Being patient with all. Patient with all who will malign you like they did Moses. Who will complain about what you do. Like Moses and the Lord. Who will sometimes hurt you. Who will sometimes accuse you. Be patient with all. That may be the most challenging thing of all of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. The word patient here is probably more akin to the word long-suffering. There are two words we call long-suffering and patient. The word patient has to do with bearing up under some burden. There's some heavy weight that's pressing down upon you. There's some circumstance, there's some trial that's pressing down upon you. The word long-suffering has to do with holding out long in the face of of offense without retaliation. So here's a person that in some way has has spoken against you or insulted you in some way, has spoken sharply against you, and instead of responding sharply right back, he says you hold out long in the face of opposition before you retaliate. The word long-suffering is a very picturesque word. It's a word that means long on nose. Now, we may not appreciate that a lot. Especially if you have a pudgy nose. Translate that long on breath. Have you ever seen anyone just violently angry? And how do they breathe? It's fast, pulsating breaths. Like a horse that just finished running the Kentucky Derby. And the blast is strong. Now what he's saying here is, and being patient with all is sometimes you just have to take a real deep breath to be patient with all. But now while we talk about that, someone says, you know, I was kind of with you on all this. It's been challenging what you've been saying, but now you just crossed the line on 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14. I don't think I can do that with anyone. Well, I would say you're not in the lonesome boat. Because I suspect if you ask Joe that's been doing this for 36 years, if he still has it down good, he's probably going to tell you yes. It's always a process. But here's the thing. You're never going to be able to do it unless you start. You're not going to be able to do it unless you just jump in and get it all over you. And let it wash all over you. And so sometimes the only way you can develop this is 
to just become actively involved in the doing of the very things we're talking about, knowing that it may not always be appreciated by people, that you're trying to warn, that you're trying to comfort, that you're trying to be patient with, that you're trying to uphold. Sometimes it will not be seen that way. But a person's response to you is not your responsibility. Your responsibility, my responsibility, your responsibility is to do what he's telling us to do. It's not to interpret the the response of someone. Because someone responds in an adverse way to me does not mean, okay, I'm going to withhold doing that. It takes patience and it takes a willingness to stick your neck out on the line. But understand when you do that. It's interesting that when the term is used, elders, it is not used in a singular way. It is used in a plural way. And so you're not all alone. Whether there's two men or whether there's 15 men, you are not alone. You have someone that's on that team that will also now comfort you and uphold you and be patient with you while you feel like you are the one that has been beaten up. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, this is what it tells us. It tells, you need to give instruction. That's the idea of admonish. You warn, you comfort, you uphold, and you be patient. Those are the service items that are there. And the question is then who? Well, the unruly. You help the weak. You encourage the faint-hearted or feeble-minded. And then finally, you be patient with all people. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, where all we had to do, the only passage we had, we don't have Acts, we don't have Acts, Acts 11, where they received a contribution. We don't have Acts 15, where they helped sell a controversy, where they heard a case and made a judgment. We have Acts 20 where we have the illustration of, of comforting and serving the weak in a very humble way and pouring yourself out for them. We don't have those. If all we have was 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, that would be bucket, a bucket full on its own. All by itself. That would be labor enough to challenge someone who is going to accept the responsibility that we're talking about accepting in doing this work as a shepherd and a bishop. Now, Think about this from the standpoint of the terms we've talked about. The term elder, which addresses spiritual maturity. A person is of some age to have spiritual maturity. And they have some age, they're of some age to have wisdom and discernment and have demonstrated that. That's the person you're going to listen to who's going to try to warn you. That's the person you're going to listen to who's going to try to comfort you and try to uphold you. Now, if you think about that shepherd who who's going to to lead you in green pastures and beside the still waters and walk with you through the valley of death and prepare a table for you. And you're never going to be without. The shepherd's going to provide. And the sheep never have to worry about being impoverished. That's the person or persons you're going to listen to when they try to warn you. That's the person or persons you're going to listen to when they try to uphold you or when they try to comfort you. And you think about that term bishop, someone who is an onlooker, someone who is a watcher, someone who is a caretaker, and they demonstrate their care 
takerness over you. They have seen you in your greatest dilemma. That's the person, you're, they come up to you, that's the person that you're going to listen to when they warn you, when they comfort you, and when they seek to uphold you. That's the person you're going to listen to. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 is all we have to put with those three terms. We can understand the work of a man by those three passages. But they're not the only passages. They're the passages that we have elucidated. Complement 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. And so, he will say, verse 15, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for both, yourselves and all. Rejoice, always pray without ceasing. How are you going to make it through doing this task? Because you find joy in the helping of others. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And verse 14. I ask you to think about that. Now, let me close with the repetitive questions I've been asking. If you found a man that was demonstrated, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, do you think you'd find a man that's blameless? Do you think you'd find a man that was temperate? Do you think he would be a novice? Do you think he'd be able to teach? Do you think he'd be able to hold fast the word? Do you think that kind of man, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, would be a man who has demonstrated a fidelity to one woman and who has been an example for his children? That he could there, because he could take care of his house, he could take care of the house of God. Do you think you, have, you could see that kind of man? Do you see those attributes in that kind of man? Do you think you would find a man that's quarrelsome in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14? Do you think you'd find a man given to wine in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14? Do you think you'd find a man that's sober-minded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14? When you find the man in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, you have found the man with the character of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Now the question is, will he do the work? That's the other side of it. You see how these things complement each other? How these things weave together for us to paint a picture. Well, thank you for listening. I ask you to consider that, and we'll talk about some further passages in the next hour at 1050. Thank you. We're going to have a song and a word of prayer. Thanks. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.